and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and today's episode is all about unions just in time for Labor Day. And we thought it was a good time to put a spotlight on unions as they take an increasingly prominent role in political and cultural debates, especially since COVID-19. So we're going to explore how much money unions make, why union dues keep increasing, even though union membership has dropped, how exactly unions spend their member dues and fees. And we're going to specifically ask what percentage of worker dues and fees go to activities that benefit them versus going to union salaries and political activities. And the person joining us to break it all down is Elizabeth Messenger. Elizabeth Messenger is the CEO of Americans for Fair Treatment, a community of current and former public sector employees offering resources and support to exercise their First Amendment rights. Elizabeth started her career in the publicity department at Atlantic Records in Los Angeles, California. But in 2016, Elizabeth transitioned into working with liberty-focused nonprofits with a particular focus on public sector labor reform. Elizabeth, a pleasure to have you on She Thinks for the first time. Thank you so much. That was quite the intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> and one of the things I love about your organization, Americans for Fair Treatment, is that you are made up of people who either have worked in unions or currently working in unions. How did this organization come about? And I'm curious if you could share maybe some of the stories you hear from people when they reach out to you. Yeah, well, I um, I don't know if this will come as a shock to you, but the government is not exactly known for being a great employer. Um, and so it's sort of in the wake of a 2018 Supreme Court decision uh, that basically said that public employees don't have to pay a dime to a union as a condition of employment. What we found was a bunch of people left their union and they kind of had no place to go. Um, and so we um, created a free membership program for public employees not all of them have left their union, as you said, but many of our members have. Um, but basically, we empower them with education and with tools so that they can speak up about their experience in, um, in a unionized workplace. Um, and I think when I think about stories, I specifically think of a teacher in Pennsylvania who went through our legislative training program. I think you know, you've worked with her on media training. She's a really incredible teacher. And she decided, you know, I want to talk to the Pennsylvania lawmakers on the Labor and Industry Committee about several bills that she saw would help her, help worker freedom, help protect public employees from the overreach of unions. So we did all this prep with her. She wrote this beautiful testimony. She sits down in front of the Labor Committee and every Democrat on the committee got up and walked out on her. And yet she persisted, as some um, senators say in D.C. Uh, she gave her testimony. And I thought after, oh, she's going to be so rattled. And she wasn't. She was so emboldened. She wrote op-eds. She wrote letters. Um, and so every day I'm just in awe of these specifically public teachers who go through a lot in the classroom, go through a lot in that unionized environment, and yet they still want to stand up for their colleagues and for other Americans. So it's a very rewarding job, I would say, for, for me and for my colleagues. And when you talk to, let's say, a teacher or somebody else who's part of a union, what would you say is the common theme that you hear from them? Why are they reaching out to you? What, what are they most concerned about? Well, it's funny. The number one reason for, I would say, the first couple years after that Janus decision, so 2018 to 2020, the number one thing we heard was, I don't like where the union, you know, like where they spend my money, my dues. So I want to leave. So it's, it's interesting. The number one reason really was how the unions would take union members money, so their dues money, to the tune of $1,000 to even $1,500 a year, depending on 
uh, what state you're working in. And they would the union would spend that money on progressive politics, very partisan progressive politics. So that was sort of the initial catalyst for a lot of people coming in the door. Today, it's um, especially you mentioned COVID. In the wake of COVID, many people are upset with the fact that the union is not representing them at the bargaining table. They're not representing them in the media. Um, and what they experience in the workplace, a lot of times at the hands of the union, is bullying, intimidation. Um, a lot of these unions really are hyper-partisan you know, political organizations. And so the public employees who come to us are weary, fatigued, and they're looking for support. And when you use the word bully, can you give me an example of how a union worker, a teacher, let's say, is bullied by the union? Well, unfortunately, we've had instances of physical abuse. We had a teacher um, in New York who was physically assaulted. Um, They stood up for um, themselves and they left the union. And that's a very rare um, example, but it it does happen. Usually it's things like their name will be added to a list on a bulletin board. They might be called a name, you know, a scab or a rat. Um, a lot of times it's they're told misinformation. Uh, specifically, they might be told your benefits come from your union and they'll find out, no, they come from the employer. And when they push, they'll start getting harassing texts. They'll get harassing letters. So a lot of times I think for us, what we see is it's just those that gradual harassment that builds up and it gets to the point where it's a hostile work environment. And I know that you inform workers of their rights. What would you say is one of the common misperceptions of the rights that the worker may have against their union? The first is that you don't have to pay them any money to be in the you know in the workplace to have your job. The second, this is for a public employee, that is. The second um, right, I would say, is that your pension, your seniority, your job security, that all comes from your employer as a public employee. And so many public employees are told by the union, if you leave the union, you will lose your job, you will lose your pension. And that's simply not true. Um, But it's amazing how bold the union is. Um, to keep people in the union, they'll say all kinds of outlandish things. So um, that's the, I, I would say, the most common thing that we hear from public employees. So let's get into why maybe there are some misperceptions or flat out lies that unions like to tell union members. And I think we could just start with the financial position of some of these labor unions. These are These are institutions that are making a lot of money, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, so one thing I just started researching, I'm going to get a little wonky here, um, a lot of unions will act. So let's we'll speak about teachers unions. So there's a teachers union in Philadelphia that acts almost as an insurance broker. So, for example, for the health um, health insurance, you know, maybe the employer handles, but the dental and vision might be a plan that the union sort of acts as a, a middle person. So the city of Philadelphia will give the union a huge sum of money to operate these programs. And the unions will sit on that cash and use the interest from that to make investments in things like real estate. And what we're finding in places like Philadelphia and New York City, these funds are just ripe for corruption. So there's so many corruption issues. That's been shocking to me. Um, and that that's just, that's a benefit fund. That's a very kind of niche area. But overall, what we see more than anything, again, like I said, um, kind of at the top of our conversation, A lot of this union dues money. So this is not a PAC contribution or an additional contribution made by the employee. This is dues money that the employee is paying to the union as a part of representation. That money is being spent on political candidates. It's being sent maybe from a state like New York down to a state like Virginia to help 
Democrats in Virginia. Um, and what we see is widespread corruption on that front when it comes to political activity. And I think that's the thing that really has opened the eyes of so many public employees who are in a unionized environment, but also public employees in places like Virginia who maybe are not yet unionized. And so when somebody pays their dues, um, their fees often associated as well, what is the typical perception that one may have as to where they go? Because I would assume that most people would think, oh, this is supposed to help me with collective bargaining or help me, um, you know, for my rights. Do most union workers think that the majority of that money is used directly to benefit them or are they told how much goes to political activities? A hundred percent, they think that it goes to protect them. I think most people in a unionized workplace imagine the union almost as like your state farm or your Geico uh, broker. I pay this money, it goes into a fund, and then whenever I need help, they're there to help me. And the reality is, I would say up to 80%, depending on, again, where you are, up to 80% of the money at the local level kind of runs up the chain to the state level and then to the federal before it comes kind of washed back down to the local. So for most people, it's only a small amount of money that stays in that local union to actually help them with a legal proceeding or for bargaining. And that, I think, is just shocking to so many people. I I think there's a lot of nostalgia about unions of the past. Would you say that the way we viewed unions decades prior, let's say, where our grandparents um, were a part of that, is it different than today? A thousand percent. Apparently, I'm into percentages. (laughs) I think a lot of people look at the union and think of that um, Sally Fields movie, Norma Ray. They think of someone on a factory line. They think of someone who is in a really horrible work environment and, you know, they have a horrible employer. The reality is most unionized workers in America are white collar, you know, office workers. So people very much think of the union as their grandfather's union. And that couldn't be further from the truth. In a way, I would say that unions are almost an anachronism. They did a lot of work for um, the federal government, you know, at the federal level, getting the eight-hour workday put in place, which we will see on social media on Labor Day. Thank a union for your weekends. But today, I think most of the union activity really is this partisan political activity. It's not representing the individuals who are in the workplace. And do you think that maybe is why President Biden didn't speak out too much against schools being shut down for so long? He seemed very quiet about that. Is that because of the connection to the money? I think you're right. I also think um, so much was happening so fast where the unions were actually advising these these agencies. And so I think for whether it was Biden or a federal agency, they were taking their direction from the unions. And so I think that's why we didn't see them speak against the unions, because they were kind of working hand in glove. And I'm going to get some of these numbers wrong, but I was as I was reading through some of your materials, something that really stood out to me was the amount of money that the president of the American Federation of Teachers makes. So this is Randy Weingarten, who made a ton of press over her stance on lockdown. She was on the right, wrong side of it, keeping children out of school. She makes over $400,000, where I think the average salary of a teacher is around the forty-five dollars to $55,000 range, if I'm right on those numbers. I mean, that's an astronomical salary. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is um, a lot of times the union leaders, the bosses will speak out against corporate bosses. 
but the union really is a corporation and the people at the top of the union are making salaries in line with many corporate uh, you know, officials, especially I would say, you know, a lot of times they'll speak out against an auto manufacturing company or, uh, you know, something of that, something of that nature. And that's the thing that's been sort of shocking as we dig into these salary numbers. The salaries for these union bosses are very large. And oftentimes they're drawing a salary from more than one entity. So that that you mentioned there was an LM2, which is a legal document, a tax document filed by the union with the DOL. That that's what we see. There are so many other streams of revenue for these union bosses that we don't see. They work for PACs. They work for nonprofits. They have speaking engagements. We don't see that. So it's it's very true. And, and it's all too often um, is the case that these union bosses make even more than what a corporate CEO would make, which is so ironic because I think that that's the message that unions want people to take away, that a corporate boss is greedy and not to be trusted and that they are to be trusted. But in reality, when it comes to salaries, they're very, very similar to these big corporate bosses that they so often will derail. And and something that you reported on as well, looking at the data and you scan through the data on all of this, is that membership has declined. Now, I assume that a lot of that has to do with the Supreme Court decision in 2018, which you mentioned, where they nobody is forced to, to be part of a union. Um, but tell us, how big of a drop has it been? Is it more than the Supreme Court decision? What is it really the result of that or the reason for it? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is the Supreme Court decision from 2018. Um, at that time, people who were what they call agency fee payers were immediately released from you know paying any fees or membership duties. But since then, lots of groups around the country have been sounding the alarm, you know, rolling out just massive educational platforms to tell public employees that they can leave the union. I think it, the numbers kind of vary. The research varies based on what we have. I would say membership has dropped anywhere from 20 to 30 percent since 2018. And that's a significant blow to their bottom line. But yet their bottom line is still going up. So how are they making up this money if membership, the membership has gone down? That's a great that's a great point. One, they charge way more in membership. So we've seen dues go up specifically in the northeast and on the west coast go up substantially. The other thing is they're unionizing new types of workers or unionizing people who weren't unionized. So for example, uh, more staff in the school, bus drivers, um, we're seeing a lot of hospital staff now being unionized. So I think the union is able to make up some of that lost revenue by again, increasing the dues and then unionizing new groups of people. And something that I always think is interesting when we talk about unions and how they use dues for political activity is that federal law does allow this. Are there limits, though? Are there limits to who they can contribute to or what causes or the amount? What what is the legality on it? Yeah, there are limits. I mean, they are subject to, excuse me, all the same limits that, you know, apply to any other political contribution. I think the difference with a government union is it's not just the money. So yes, they have PACs, they have, you know, lots of ways to kind of funnel that money from the member to the politician, but they have an incredible ground game. So there's a thing called release time for a state worker or official time for a federal worker. And basically what that means is that the employee, instead of reporting to an office or a classroom all day, they might work for a union but their employer still pays their salary. So for example, if you're a teacher, uh, let's say you're in the classroom next to me um, and you work for the union, 
you still get paid by our school district, but instead of being in the classroom next to me, now maybe you start working for the union. So you're out, you're organizing new people, you might be meeting with politicians on behalf of the union. So that's the thing that the union has, that political advantage that's so hard to track. And honestly, it really is such a valuable tool for them in getting votes out. So I mentioned before, money might leave a state like Pennsylvania and go to Virginia. We see all too often that workers will be organized in a city like Philadelphia. They'll get on a bus and be driven down to a place like Virginia Beach to participate in, you know, whether it's a rally or door knocking for Democratic candidates. So it's a really pernicious system. It's, it's hard to track, but it's very, very common and widespread. What if somebody is listening to you and says, I'm part of a union or somebody in my family is part of the union and we want to get out, but we're fearful about what that's going to mean for our benefits, let's say, or our salary. So even put the bullying aside and the intimidation tactics, they just don't know in a functional way whether or not they'll get the same amount of money. Have you seen that salaries don't increase when people leave unions? Is there that type of retribution for leaving? No, um, we haven't seen any when it comes to salaries or benefits, we've never seen a case where someone's salary went down or their seniority went down. Now, that's not to say that, you know, workplace bullying is is not going to happen. I mean, that that's unfortunately human nature. I, for that person, though, who's contemplating leaving and what would the other side look like? You know, what would the consequence of me leaving the union be? The first thing I would say is read your contract, read your collective bargaining agreement. Everything that's in that agreement pertains to you. Um, and so that means that everything that's guaranteed in that agreement is guaranteed for you, regardless of union membership status. The second thing is do your homework. There are groups, you know, like my organization, Americans for Fair Treatment, and so many others who will run through all of the scenarios with you. We'll go through your contract. We'll go through your bylaws if we can. We'll go through all of those things to make sure that you're equipped with the facts to make the right decision for you. Um, but I think for so many people, Again, it's that misinformation in the workplace. Even the HR person might be armed with the, the wrong facts that are provided by the union. And so I often tell people, do your own homework, you know, get outside advice, um, and then, you know, go in and make an informed decision. And often you can be a help to your colleagues, because if you're thinking about it, I guarantee your colleagues, some of the colleagues in your workplace are also thinking about it. And so just final question for you as as we think about this all is, is a union valuable? Is there any value? So I'm sure some people may accuse your organization of just trying to get rid of unions altogether. We've talked before. I know that's not the case. What would you say about the value of unions, if any? I think there are union alternatives that showcase that there is value in a union. I think the concept of a union is a remarkable concept. I think unions have done great things in the past for America, um, for workers in America, for our labor laws. I think today the best unions are the local only, the ones who are only focused on you know one workplace, one small group of workers. They work tires, tirelessly for those individuals. Those unions we find, I mean, there's one in California that is only in that one school district and it's a healthy, thriving union. Um, we see this it's not very common, but we do see this. And it's a really remarkable thing to see these group of people represented well, um, they're taken care of, and that money stays in the community. So I think when a union can stay very independent and hyper-local, it can be what it was meant to be. And that is a force to speak for all, 
to help all, um, to protect all, to kind of raise all at the same time. But again, it's it's only when it's independent, you know, it's not tied to a national bloated kind of corporate union. And it's only when it's at the local level. And if people want to get in touch with you and they want some help understanding their contracts, what they can, they can do, give us your website. Americansforfairtreatment.org or AFFT.org. All right. Well, we so appreciate you breaking it down for us just in time for Labor Day. Elizabeth Messenger with Americans for Fair Treatment. We appreciate having you on, she thinks. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That is IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all all of us here at IWF. Thanks for watching.